reading this morning uh, can be found on page 74 on the Bibles in front of you. And we're reading from Exodus 19, starting at verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set up from Rephidim, they entered the desert of the Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits on the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Good morning. G'day everyone. It's good to be here. Well done for getting out in the rain. These are the keen beans. Good on you. It's a... there it starts again. It's, uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, we're right in the middle of our cracking series on Exodus. It's been really good, hasn't it? I think there's been a real buzz around the place that we, we know the story of Exodus, but digging down deep into the scriptures has revealed a lot of great truths about who God is and who we are and how we're to respond. So uh, I get the privilege of tackling Exodus chapter 19 on the 19th today, and God's got a lot in store for us in his word this morning. So as always, I want to pray and ask that God would speak uh, through me. That wouldn't be my words, but it would be his words speaking to us collectively this morning. So why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you now um, desperately in need of your word. Father, we just want to repent where we have utterly looked for other things to satisfy us. We need you. We need you to refresh our souls. So this morning, we, we ask just that, that you would refresh our souls, that you would be our bread, our drink this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, many of you uh, know I used to be in a rock band, in a Christian rock band. Yes, I think it's uh, just about time for another a story from the band days. And, 
Sorry if it's too many, too bad. Um, so we lived and toured in the US for about four years. And you might think, you know, being in a band's pretty glamorous. Let me tell you, it's not really. I mean, it's kind of fun. You get to play music, hang out with your friends, if they are your friends in the band. And um, you get to meet interesting people. But a lot of time, you're not doing a lot of those things. You're traveling. A lot of time in airports, and particularly for us, a lot of time in buses. Now, um, it's kind of sad to say, but you can pretty much tell, like, how a band is doing, how well they're doing, by what they're getting around in, by what they're traveling in. So if you see a band touring around in one of these, you know they're doing pretty darn well, right? We didn't meet too many bands hauling around in one of these, but we did meet a couple, and they were doing just fine. Um, If you see a band touring around in one of these you know, yeah, they're doing pretty good. It's a premium-style coach. They cost a lot of money to hire or buy, so they're doing pretty good. And then there was us. Then there was my band. When we were starting out in the US, this is what we used to get around in. Yeah, laugh it up, laugh it up, that's it. This is uh, the white whale, or the tic-tac, we used to call it, kind of white with round edges. And this hunk of junk was home out on the road for sometimes weeks on end. And my poor wife used to, to, to travel in the bus with us as well. Feel sorry for her with smelly boys and all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, out on the road, this was our home. Now, obviously, in a band, you've got a lot of stuff too, like merch and, uh, you know, amps and all that kind of stuff. So we towed a trailer as well. So that's the bad boy there. 12-foot by 8-foot trailer, really big, packed with stuff. Right, so this one day... We head out on the road, we've got a, a show in a nearby state, and we live down the south, now in Atlanta, and so it's the middle of summer, it's a really, really hot day, and what happens to your air conditioning on those days? It breaks, doesn't it? Every time on a really hot day, our air conditioning would break, because it's a hunk of junk, right? So we are travelling down the road about an hour into our journey, we've got these electric fans to our face, trying to stay cool, huddled around a couple of them, when we all hear this bang, scrape. And the sound again, bang, scrape, then it kind of fades away. And we look at each other, that doesn't sound good. So one of us runs down to the back of the bus, pulls open the curtain and looks out the back and yells out, the trailer's gone! The trailer's gone! It's a true story, unfortunately. So we're on the interstate, so we try and pull over as fast as we can, but that's hard, right? So we're busy road. So we pull over, we get out of the bus, and we are just running down the side of the road, and all we can see is smoke. So I'm running down, and I, I vividly remember this f- sick feeling in my stomach, like, oh my gosh, all I can see is smoke, this has just been a horrible accident. We get further down the road, though, and we realise the smoke's not coming from a collision with a car, but somehow the trailer had started a series of fires along the interstate. What had happened was, we kind of figured out pretty quickly, what happened was the trailer had come off, it detached from the bus, and as it did, the tow ball hit the road with such force and it was so hot that sparks flew every time it did that and started a series of fires along the interstate. Here's pictures of the event <laughs> like that. And uh, you can see here there's one close up and there's another one in the distance. There was three or four of them, I can't quite remember. So thankfully not a collision with a car, but still quite serious. The flames were travelling quite quickly towards those trees. Thankfully a truck driver stopped, you can see here in the distance, truck driver stopped and put it out with a fire extinguisher. Us idiots had our shirts off trying to beat the flames out. It wasn't very successful, we just ruined our shirts. And, but thankfully a truck driver pulled over and put them out. Now the trail, oh you can see here, here's the tow ball that got ground down from that force by hitting the road. Now, what happened to the trailer? Well, amazingly, here it is. Uh, it, it just it came off and then hit the ground a few times and then went down the embankment and just 
generally came to a stop. Amazing. So it's a bit beaten up there, but our gear was fine. And the emergency services turned up and they said, we've never seen a trailer do that. Usually it comes off and flips and carnage ensues. So I won't say we were lucky because like many other stories, I could stand here all morning and tell you ones where God was incredibly gracious to us. We were very, very fortunate God was with us that day. So what had happened, right? Why did the trailer come off? Well, we'd put it on wrong. We'd attached it wrong. You see, there is a very particular way to attach a trailer to a bus or a car or whatever, right? A procedure that you've got to follow. It's the tow ball, then the chain, then the pin. If you got it wrong, if you get the order wrong, there was big trouble. And that's what happened that morning. We got the order wrong, we got the procedure wrong, and uh, we're pretty, we were pretty fortunate that tragic consequences you know, didn't happen. And you know, for us Christians can kind of be the same. It's possible for us to get the order wrong when it comes to salvation, how we're saved. You see, we can often forget or misunderstand the order when it comes to grace and the law, when it comes to God's wonderful grace and then how we should respond. We can, we can tend to get that order wrong. And if we do, well, that can have some pretty serious consequences. So this morning, we're going to explore this idea by travelling through chapter 19 of Exodus. And also, we're going to look at three questions while we do that. We're going to look at three questions, right? How do we become God's people? How should we respond? And what does that mean for us? Not just individually, as a church. So how do we become God's people? How do we respond? And what does that mean for us as a church? Let's get going with the first one. How do we become God's people? Well, I reckon let's just spend 30 seconds kind of, you know, coming up to speed on where we are in this epic book of Exodus. Right, we've seen the Israelites brutally enslaved by the Egyptians. God hears their cries. He sends Moses to Pharaoh to say those famous words, let my people go. Pharaoh's stubborn, he refuses. After 10 plagues, he finally gives in, only to change his mind again after the Israelites leave, and they're sort of at the the, uh, edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's coming, and there they are, stuck between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And we know what happens next, right? God miraculously parts the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry land. The Egyptians try and pursue, and what does God do? Sends the waters crashing down and defeats the Egyptian army. The Israelites stand on the, the other side of the Red Sea and see their oppressors defeated. What did they have to do? Nothing. They didn't lift a finger. Then they wander through the desert for a little while and finally reach a mountain called Mount Sinai. And this is where we are in uh, chapter 19. Now, if you might remember back in chapter 3, this is the place where God first revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And what did he say? He said, when you're free from slavery, you'll come here and you'll worship me. Another one of God's promises fulfilled. So here we are. We've heard in the reading... Moses goes up to this mountain and meets with God, pretty amazing, and God speaks to him. And this is what he says in verses 4, 5, and 6 of our reading. And we're going to be spending most of our time this morning digging into these verses. There's a lot of goodness here. This chapter, there is so much to speak about. I'd be speaking for a couple of hours if I did, so I just want to focus in on these three verses and really get the goodness out of it. So let's do that together. uh, They're on the screen, or you can look in your Bibles, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's read them together again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in thinking about our first question, right, how do we become God's people? Let's zero in on that first verse there in verse 4. How did, how did Israel become God's people? How did that happen? What did they have to do? You know, what did they have to achieve? How did they get that status? What did they have to do? Nothing. You see, when God meets Israel at Mount Sinai, like here in chapter 19, they're already his people. Now, yes, as we're about to see, since they're God's people, well, something's now required of them, but that doesn't make them God's people. They already are. Really important to understand that. In chapter 4, um, God refers to Israel as my firstborn son. Beautiful. Such relationship there. And right throughout the Exodus narrative, he refers to the Israelites as my people. So it's made really clear to us that what's going on in Exodus 19, right here at Mount Sinai, it's not establishing the relationship between God and his people. It's already there. And it's the same for us as Christians, right? We don't obey our way into a relationship with God. God chooses us, God saves us, that's how we become his people. You know, my wife and I, Pip, we have um, three crazy kids under five. Um, it's uh, just a joy every second of every day, isn't it, love? And um, I tell you, you know, every day, right, we try and teach them to love and serve each other. It's a bit of biffo in the house often. And, um, and, and to love and serve other people. And if you're a parent, um, you'll know that is just a really easy thing to do, isn't it? No, not really at all. It's the hardest thing we've ever done. Uh, you know, we teach them and we discipline them. But often, and I'll be fair, like us, like all of us, they do what they want and they disobey us. But no matter what they do or how they behave, they never actually cease to be our children. No matter how bad that tantrum is in Coles, where you're just wanting to leave them. You know, whose kid? I have no idea, so I don't know whose child that is. Sorry. See, obeying us doesn't make them our kids. They already are. Nothing's ever going to change that. God has adopted you as a son or a daughter to be in his family by his grace, his initiative, his action. That's who we are. That's who you are. Nothing can change. That grace comes first. We don't obey our way into a relationship with him. We can't get that order wrong. So God saves us by his wonderful grace, but that's not it. He doesn't leave us, you know, to fend for ourselves after that. See the back half of our verse 4 there. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Like of a mother eagle gently caring for its young chicks while they're vulnerable and they can't do anything for themselves. God's comparing himself to that. That's what God's like. He cares for his people. He's not distant. He actually desires to be in a relationship with us. See, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They enjoy, you read chapters 1, 2, 3 of Genesis. God, he dwells with his people in a beautiful way in the garden. But ever since the fall, major question of the Bible is, how are we going to get back there? How are we going to get back to that place where we dwell with God, when we are with him? And the answer is, God's going to make a way. Not through anything we could do. God is going to make a way. That's what's happening here in this whole book of Exodus, and particularly in chapter 19. 
God's figuring out a way to be with his people because he desires to be close to us. It's true for us as Christians. He desires to be close to us, to be in relationship with us. Thing is, though, I think a lot of us really struggle with this. I know I do. Struggle with feeling that God's distant, you know, that he's far from us, that our prayers are kind of just hitting the ceiling. Do you feel that? You feel like God is distant. See, we've got to, as God's people, remind each other that that isn't true. We're going to be tempted to believe that it is, but it's not. God desires to be in relationship with his people, and he has been from the start. Right? God hears the cries of the Israelites in slavery. What does he do? Crushes the Egyptians, brings his people to himself. God hears our cries of pain, loneliness, doubt, fear, heartbreak. And what does he do? All the best with that. No. He gives himself to us. How beautifully do we see this in Jesus? How does God pursue us? He becomes one of us to pursue us and to seek us out. The God is a gracious God who's not distant and he saves us first by his sheer grace. But how do we respond to that? How should we, could we respond to his grace? Let's have a look at the next verse here. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. So, Israel, already God's people, no question about that, but, but something is required of them, right? They've got to respond to what God has done appropriately. God says, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then you'll be my treasured possession. Well, what does that covenant word mean? Well, Scott explained it for us a couple of weeks ago really well, that it's not like just a contract, like a cold contract. It's far more than that. It's an agreement based on a promise within a relationship. See, God's delivered his people out of slavery into freedom. But what does that freedom look like? Well, it's not I can do whatever I want kind of freedom. No, they're free to worship God as they weren't free in Egypt to do so. Worship God appropriately, how he wants to be worshipped. And it's the same for us. Right? God's defeated our greatest enemies of sin, death, and the enemy. And we're now free to worship him because of what he's done. Not free to do whatever we want. See, I, I think um, for all of us, really, I think, there's a couple of ways that we, we struggle with this. right? With the, the daily sort of living out of responding to God's grace. I think some of us, we acknowledge what Christ has done. For us on the cross, yep, we recognize it's only by grace we're saved. But then we might presume on God's grace. You know, we tend to think or at least live like, yep, Jesus died for me only by grace, but, you know, it doesn't really change how I live. I can kind of do what I want, right? Many of you would have heard of a a German man named, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a photo of him there. He was a young theologian and pastor who lived in Nazi Germany. And uh, he witnessed many Christians, many of his friends, and many church leaders greatly compromise their faith during Hitler's rise to power and when he was in power in the 30s and 40s. These people, they, they Bonhoeffer's friends, these Christians and church leaders, they knew what Hitler was doing, uh, systematically exterminating the Jews and um, other minorities, but they chose to look away and do nothing. Now, granted, they were under extreme pressure, um, but they chose to look into the face of evil and then look away and do nothing. Bonhoeffer, on the other hand, 
stood up to the face of evil, did something about it and gave his life for it. But before he died, um, he wrote about this, this situation, and how he was bitterly disappointed in how the Christians were acting. And he, he called how they were operating cheap grace. See, what he meant was, you can't receive the free grace of Jesus Christ and then live as you want. It, it's got to profoundly affect how you live. Yes, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Bonhoeffer famously said here, Cheap grace is a preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. He's bang on the money, isn't he? You see, there is a call on our lives. We, we might bristle at the fact, but it's the truth. I mean, how do we respond to God's grace? How he wants us to. We approach him how he wants to be approached. We worship him as he would be worshipped. I think of some of us, particularly those of us who've been Christians for a long time, like myself, we might get tripped up um, in a different way. Our struggle might not be presuming on God's grace, but it might be actually the daily struggle to obey for the right reasons. Now, we certainly know how we're saved, and we could quote it, yep, we're saved by faith, sorry, by grace, uh, of faith, by, by faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't say that well then, did I? Um, and, uh, but I think, but daily, we tend to actually base our salvation on what we do, on how we perform, and how we act, on how we obey. I was playing a show down in Florida um, when I was in the band somewhere and about two hours before the show, the promoter came up to me and he said, oh, the speaker's a no-show uh, for tonight's event. Would you mind filling in? And uh, we used to do that a lot. You know, we'd be the band and there'd also be a speaker. It's the first time this had happened though. And he said, look, you can speak on what you want. It can be really short, but would you mind doing it, please? And uh, I was a bit nervous. I like having my prep time. But uh, you, do you know what the first thing I thought was? Have I done my quiet time today? How's my thought life been? Have I sinned much today? You see, I was just thinking the outcome of this talk will be based on those things, will depend on those things and how I perform. Now, please hear me loud and clear. There is a place for self-reflection when it comes to ministry and just life in general. But uh, my immediate reaction was just to base my standing before God and my ministry on what I'd done, on what I do, on how I perform. If I'm not careful, if I'm not in community with brothers and sisters in Christ, I can easily fall into this works-faith mentality. I reckon some of us think the, um, the Old Testament, that's, that's the cranky God. That's the God, you know, all, lots of rules. That's what the Old Testament's about. New Testament, about grace and love and relationship. And it's just not true. You see, we see in verse 8, that was read for us as well, Moses comes down the mountain with the words God has says. He, he tells them to the people, and how do they respond? They respond well. They say, we will do everything God has said. But what are they responding to? You'll notice, actually, there are no laws yet. There are no decrees, no commandments, no laws. That comes next in chapter 20. Scotty's going to be preaching on the Ten Commandments next week. So they're not agreeing to, yeah, we will do these particular things, God. What are they agreeing to? They're agreeing to be in relationship with God. 
They're actually saying, God, we trust you with anything that you have to say because we know that's going to be best for us and that's the appropriate way to respond to the grace that you've shown us in delivering us from Egypt. This is a huge point of difference between every other faith system and religion on the planet. See, we obey, why do we obey? In response to what God's done, to be in relationship with Him and to worship Him, right? We don't obey to hopefully get a ticket into heaven. We don't obey so God might, you know, mercifully throw us a blessing. We're already blessed, aren't we? As God's people, we're already blessed. All right, let's move on to our final question now. What does all this mean for us? And I mean us collectively as a church. What does it mean for us? Well, let's have a look at the next verse, verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let's unpack those two terms, right? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do they mean? Well, what do they mean for Israel? Well, priests were the go-between, the mediator between God and the people and the people and God. Right? They were dedicated to serving God and worshipping Him. But guess what? It wasn't just a select few. The entire people of God, all of Israel, were to be this. And this leads into the meaning of a holy nation, right? The entire nation was to be set apart, distinct, different. Why? Yeah, to be a community that obeyed God and served Him. But more than that, to show the world what God is like. And it's the same for us today, right? We're the new people of God, the church. We are the new people of God. And we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The New Testament uh, letter of 1 Peter just steals this beautifully from Exodus 19. And here it is in 1 Peter. But you are to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are to be God's people and to serve Him by obeying Him and worshipping Him in the way He wants to be worshipped. We serve God and each other and this is everyone, not just the clergy, not just the people in suits or the people on staff, the ordained ministers or whatever, not the people you know, the, who are sitting in the first third of the rows here, the keen beans or the keen beans who turn up when it's raining. No, it's every single member of God's people is to be this. Israel was the same. It's the same for us today. That's what it actually means to be a holy nation, right? The church is to be a witness to the world. Our role is to show the world what God's like. Together, we're to be a sign, a foretaste of what God's coming kingdom will be. Lots of people outside of the church must think and and say, what are you Christians on about? What do you guys do in church? You know, what's the church about? What's your community like? And they think, right, well, how are you different from everybody else? What a tragedy if they came and looked and, and, and saw just the same as everywhere else. Divisions and infighting. You know, bigotry and singleness. Uh, sorry, stinginess rather, excuse me. Gossip and uh, inequality. What if they saw those things? Wouldn't that be tragic? But what if they saw a place that didn't hold grudges, that forgave no matter what the cost, that practiced equality in all areas, racial, gender, that practiced real tolerance 
and listened to people's opinions and, and gave time to things that we might not actually agree with but love people in that way? What if we looked like that? What if we were a place that we stood up for what was right? We, we feed the hungry, we serve the poor. What if we were a place that we actually recognize materialism for what it is and we reject it? That's not something we want to buy into. What if we were a place that recognized individualism for what it is and the damage it's doing to our culture, the loneliness it's reaping? We reject that and we embrace community, even if it means accountability and commitment. What if we, what if we were that? Isn't that the, the church that you want to be a part of? That's what it means to be a holy nation, right? We will look different to the world and that will actually be our most attractive feature, our difference. I think so. I feel like this is why sometimes we want to look like the rest of the world so we'll be cool and people will come in, right? And we, want, we kind of want that in a way so people from the outside will feel comfortable, but not so much so that we lose our distinctiveness because our difference is our greatest feature. When people come to the end of themselves and they get sick of the world, may they come here and find something beautifully different. See, I've been um, really encouraged by seeing a lot of this happening in our community. I hope you're encouraged too. There's a lot of beautiful things going on right now in our community. One particularly, very recently, uh, has just happened. Someone in need has come into our community. And my wife and I have just witnessed a lot of this. It's been pretty much the automatic response of a bunch of people just to give and to bless. It's been beautiful. It's actually brought tears to our eyes just thinking about how good God is to do these things, to bring people together in that situation. It's been wonderful. I know this person's been blown away and they must be thinking, why do you do this? Well, let us tell you because we have received incredible grace and incredible love. And that's just how we respond. Not out of a sense of duty, we've got to do this, man, we better help this person out. Because we want to. Why? Because we want to show people what our great God is like. You see, together as a church, we can remind each other that it's grace first, of course. And how we respond, we, we want to obey how God says. We want to worship Him how He wants to be worshipped. And while we're doing this, God will fashion us into a community that looks beautiful, like Him. That tastes, smells, feels like the great God of the universe. I'm going to pray and ask that God would continue to do that great work amongst us that I know is already happening would you pray with me so that we can be a beautiful city on a hill and shine like stars for the glory of God continue to do that let's pray together heavenly father we love you would you just constantly remind us that we obey that we worship that we serve and love others all in response to what you've done Lord, if some of us are struggling to do that, we're just feeling a real sense of duty. By your Spirit, would you just uh, minister to us and preach the gospel of grace to us again and again. May we recognize that we are actually a gift to each other and we can remind each other of this. Help us not to presume on your grace. Help us not to respond out of duty, but out of delight for how good you are to us. And may we be that beautiful city on a hill that shows the world how great you are. Amen.